for our own wisdom and safety and happiness, the Holy Spirit has inspired history. And all those who are wise will study and know that history. We are in the midst of studying that history in the book of 2 Kings. Today we're in chapters 13, 14, and 15. But in the Bible, you have the story of a great many men. Just think of these men as I list them for you. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joseph, Paul, John. These are lives that are recorded at some length in our Bible. But there are other men less common about whom the Bible gives us some history. Do you know these names? How many of these names do you know? Enoch, Caleb, Phineas, Jehoshaphat, Micaiah, Barnabas, Crispus, Philemon. God has recorded in the Bible the histories of these good men. You can learn from them. My wife was teaching the ladies yesterday on the life of Apollos. There are a great many things we can learn from looking at history. And even the history of wicked men. Can you think of wicked men recorded in the Bible? There are not nearly as many. I mean, their lives are not recorded for us to learn from. But we do have some. Cain. You are intended to learn from the life of Cain. Esau. Pharaoh. Judas Iscariot. Ahab. Jezebel. In the history of the kings, we have 42 kings. And when the kingdoms were divided into the north and the south, the northern kingdom in Israel and the southern kingdom in Judah, there are 19 kings in the northern kingdom and 20 kings in the southern kingdom. Of the 19 kings in the northern kingdom, every one is wicked. And in chapters 13, 14, and 15, three chapters in your Bible, you have the record of nine of the kings. Are you following those numbers? There are how many kings in the northern kingdom? Tell me. 19. Nine of them are in three chapters. What does that tell you? It tells you the whole point of the sermon. These men were wicked fools whose lives weren't worth recording. And yet we can even learn from that. As we read in the scripture this morning, I read to you most of the 15th chapter. And we saw six of the nine kings. 
Six of those kings are recorded with nothing recorded about their lives. Sorry, five are recorded with nothing. Menahem has one little incident recorded. And yet we can even learn from that. Let me, if I can, give you a lengthy introduction going through all nine kings. And then I'm going to return to chapter 13 and give you seven lessons. The message this morning is the lives of fools or seven lessons from fools. But because I'm going to have to explain each of the lives to you, we'll take a longer time on the first point or which could be called the introduction before we get into the seven lessons. Let's go through these lives. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Who do you see here as the first king in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah? Jehoahaz, underline that name. Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. How many years did he reign? 17 years. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You are going to see that from almost every one of the 19 kings of Israel. They followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first of the kings of Israel. He began to worship idols and all of the kings followed him. In fact, it's, it's even written that all except one, it's explicitly recorded that all except one, followed the sins of Jeroboam. And we can assume that the other one did. Do you know why it doesn't list him uh, as following the sins of Jeroboam? Because he only reigned for one month. He was so short, we're not even going to list the bad things he did. Jehoahaz is the first man. And there's a story recorded about Jehoahaz. It's in chapter 13, verse 1, down to chapter 13, Verse 7. And I'll tell you what happens in this story. In verse 2, he follows the sins of Jeroboam. And in verse 3, God is angry. Do you see that in verse 3? So he raises up the king of Syria. Syria is the kingdom to the north of the northern kingdom. Well, to the west is the ocean. To the south is Judah. To the east is the Sea of Galilee. So who's going to attack Israel but Syria? That's why, if you want to know, throughout the kings, you keep seeing Syria, Syria, Syria. Why? Because God is using them as a tool. He's using them as a tool to conquer his people. If you want to think like a Christian, you must get it in your mind and in your heart. God does bring pain and sickness and death on his people. It happens over and over When they turn away, he sends these things. And here it happens in verse 3. The king of Syria comes after him. But look at this in verse 4. And Jehoahaz prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what in verse 4? The Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Verse 5. And the Lord gave Israel a savior. This is amazing. Verse 6. 
Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin. That's Jehoahaz. He's a sinner. God sends judgment. He prays. God answers him out of mercy. And the man spits on God's grace. That's Jehoahaz. His son comes to power, Jehoash. That's in verse 10. In verse 11, it says he follows the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In verses 14 to 19, you have the story of Elisha. Elisha is about to die and Jehoash goes to him and says, Oh, help me, help me. Why? Because he's now afraid of what country? Syria to the north. Jehoash is the son of Jehoahaz. God gave Jehoahaz the victory, but because Jehoahaz didn't repent, he said, okay, I'm going to make Syria strong again. Syria is the kingdom that refuses to die. The reason is that even though they keep being beaten, because Israel will not repent, God miraculously restores this nation. How does this happen? Syria is proof again that when God wants to punish his people, he can use any means he desires. In Joash's case, in verse 14, he goes to see Elisha. Elisha is an old man and he's sick. Very interesting in verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. Everyone who believes that God wants you to be healed need to read that verse. Elisha was a prophet of God who did more miracles than Elijah. In verses 20 and 21, when Elisha's bones are put in the grave, even his bones produce a miracle and heal a man. But Elisha does not have the power to heal his own sickness. You will be told on the TV, God wants you to be well. That's a lie. Elisha was a man of God. And God said, yes, I'm making my servant sick so that he will die. Well, it goes on, the story from verses 15 to 19. Elisha says, shoot an arrow to Jehoash. And he shoots an arrow and says, that's the aim at Syria. And then he says, here, take the rest of the arrows and demonstrate your commitment to God. I want you to strike the ground, demonstrating your faith in God and your zeal for obedience. And Jehoash looks around and rolls his eyes at the old failing prophet laying on his bed and thinking the prophet won't see and wondering what he's doing and completely disinterested and looking for some kind of miracle, he smacks the arrows half-heartedly three times on the ground. And Elisha says, I know what's in your heart. There's no faith, no commitment, no belief, no holiness. You should have devoted your whole heart to obedience. So you will smite Syria three times, but after that, they will crush you. Look at chapter... 15, uh, 13, verse 23. And the Lord was gracious to them, that's Israel, and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them. Look at verse 25. 
And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him because he struck the arrows on the ground three times. Joash did not conquer the king of Syria because his heart was not pure. And so he dies. The next man is in chapter 14. It's Jeroboam number two. There are two kings named Jeroboam. Jeroboam's story is found in verse 23. You can underline him. Chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria for 41 years. God lets this man live for 41 years. But in verse 24, he follows the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But God is merciful to this man. Verse 25, he restores the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Jonah was a true prophet, and he preached to wicked kings and brought a message of mercy to wicked kings before he went to Nineveh. Here in verse 26, notice 26. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Verse 28, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did. And how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath. They're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And Jeroboam died and his son Zechariah reigned in his stead. Chapter 15, verse 8. We read this in the scripture reading. Zechariah is a wicked king. Nothing is recorded about him except that he dies. He's assassinated. The first of four kings who will be assassinated. Shalem comes to power in verse 13. Chapter 15, verse 13. He too is assassinated. A month afterward. Then Menahem comes to power. He lives and he's not assassinated. Look at verse 22. Pekahiah, his son, comes to power. But Pekahiah is assassinated in verse 25. Pekah in verse 27 comes to power. He is assassinated in verse 30 by Hoshea. Hoshea comes to power and he rules for seven years. And about Hoshea, it does not say that he followed the sins of Jeroboam, but it does say all the people followed the sins of Jeroboam, which implies the king did as well. Of these kings, nothing is recorded. Look at these kings. Zechariah, nothing is recorded. Shalom, nothing is recorded. Pekah, nothing is recorded. Hoshea, nothing is recorded. Jeroboam, the king Jeroboam, rules for 41 years. One thing is recorded about him. He was a wicked king. 
But God had mercy on the people anyway and allowed him to win. That's the only thing that's recorded. No details of the battle, nothing of his life. In fact, Jeroboam ruled longer than any of the 19 kings in the northern kingdom. And God says about his life, nothing worth seeing here, folks. I gave him grace. He squandered it. Nothing worth seeing here. And so at the end of this long introduction, I come to the thesis of my sermon. The main point of my sermon. The lives of fools have enough wisdom to save us. If you open your eyes and read history well, you should be able to be saved. But our problem is we don't read well. So let me now give you, as the sermon for this morning, let me now give you seven, lot, seven lessons from the lives of fools. Do you find yourself in one of these lessons? Do you find yourself at times in all of these lessons? Number one. God gives grace even to bad men. Go back to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 4. <clears throat> Jehoahaz prays to the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. He is an evil man. What is his sin? He's following the sins of Jeroboam. I'm sorry, of, yes, of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's an idolater. Jehoahaz is an idolater. What is idolatry? It is a sin against love, loyalty, and logic. It is a sin of forgetfulness because the Jews alone were given the law of God. Idolatry is a sin of stubbornness because God had repeatedly told them and repeatedly punished them. <clears throat> he had sent them prophets and miracles. He had delivered them. Idolatry is a barbaric, brutal, and a backward practice. Not all sins are equal. This is the worst of the sins. How do I know? Look at what it does in the lives of people. You're in the book of 2 Kings. I want you to see this. Put your hand here in chapter 13 and go back to chapter 3, verse 26. 2 Kings 3, verse 26. This is a story <clears throat> that takes place <clears throat> during Jehoshaphat's time. The godly king of, e of Judah who goes to war with Joram, the son of Ahab. And when he beats the country of Moab, look what happens. The king of Moab is defeated in verse 26. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there was great anger against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. This wicked king takes the crown prince, his own son, and offers him to an idol. 
That is barbaric. And again and again, when you read history, you must be confronted with this message. Do not ever think that all cultures are equal. They are not. Some cultures murder their children in honor of their gods. That culture is barbaric, wicked, backward. It's like an animal. When we are saved, we are being saved from that. Don't be quick to defend your culture. Be quick to defend the Bible. People who defend their culture are often caught up in the pride of vain glory. I am interested in defending the Bible and the culture that comes from Christianity. I have no interest in defending America or Europe or Asia. And I have no interest in saying we're all good. Let's just tolerate each other. We're all equal. No, we're not. The Bible is superior. And here's a great example. Jehoahaz had the Bible, but he turned his back on it. He turned his back to follow idols. Go back to chapter 13. Because of the sin of idolatry, God raises up Syria to punish them. It is this one sin that is condemned as the reason why Israel and Judah are ultimately destroyed. And even though this king worships idols, God hears him when he prays. What do we call that but Nyashachete, Chirizipezi, Tinsalo, Chanada, Grace. That is the grace of God. God gives grace to evil men. It happens again in chapter 13, verses 23 to 25. God gives grace to Jehoash, Jehoaz's son. It happens again to his son, Jeroboam. He gives grace as well. These men deserved nothing, but the 11th, 12th, and 13th kings of the northern kingdom of Israel in an unbroken line are idol worshipers, but God still gives them mercy over and over and over. He sends them prophets, Isaiah, Zechariah, Hosea, and Micah. These were prophets all sent to the northern kingdom. Why would he help them? Listen to this verse. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you not know that the goodness of God leads men to repentance? When you see God's goodness... When you taste delicious fruit, you are supposed to say, why am I sinning? That's what you're supposed to say. When you see a beautiful outfit of clothing, when you have delicious food, when you see beautiful architecture, when you have shade on a hot day, you are supposed to say, why am I sinning? But these men sinned against light. Their lives are full of undeserved kindness. What can you learn from a fool? You can learn to respond well to God's grace. Number two, what can you learn from a fool? You can learn this. Bad men harden their hearts to God's grace. Look at verse 6, chapter 13, verse 6. Really remarkable. The Lord gave Israel a savior, but in verse 6, 
Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. They walked in it. They would not leave their idolatry. Every one of these kings goes on an idolatry. They're stubborn. Do you know anyone who is stubborn? Are you sometimes stubborn? If someone described you who knew you very well, and you asked that person, describe me with five negative words, not five positive words like happy and kind and loving, but if you had to describe me with five negative words, would they use the word stubborn? This man is stubborn. Fools are stubborn. Revelation chapter 6 describes people enduring God's judgment and they are so stubborn that both the kings and the poor people, the rich and the poor, are all going to say, I would rather die. They will call out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of the living God rather than repent. That is stubbornness. Again in chapter 8, when 25% of the world's population is destroyed by a judgment from God, In in Revelation chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, it says, They would not repent of worshiping demons. They refused to repent. These are stubborn people. In the book, The Holy War, Diabolos gives men a stubborn heart. A hard heart so that they will not turn. Stubbornness is a great sin, but it is marked out from perseverance in three ways. Some of us think, I'm not stubborn, I'm just, I'm not going to give up doing what's right. Do you ever think that? Do you think, I'm not stubborn, but I'm going to stand firm because this is right. Do you think that? Let me show you three ways that perseverance is different from stubbornness. Number one, Perseverance moves toward a righteous end. Stubbornness moves towards selfishness, worldliness, and sin. So the next time that you will not bend, ask yourself, why am I not bending? Number two, perseverance has a teachable spirit. A gentle, teachable spirit. Stubbornness does not want to learn or discuss. Number three, perseverance clings to the Bible, to Scripture. Stubbornness leans on self, men, and tradition. Are you guilty of the sin of stubbornness? Stubbornness is the brother of a shifty, pliable spirit. Stubbornness is is a sin and it sends many to hell. Oh, that you would not be found guilty of the same sin. There's a man in the Pilgrim's Progress named Pliable. And when Christian begins to go on his journey, Pliable says, I'll go with you, I'll go with you. And Pliable follows Christian. But after a short time, Pliable gives up and goes back. Pliable was stubborn. Really? How could he be stubborn? He gave up. He changed. Ah, Pliable never changed his deepest heart's convictions. That's what it means to be stubborn. It means to hold to your sin without turning from it. 
Maybe you think I'm not stubborn because I can think of times that I gave in. I'm sure every wife here is thinking, I'm not stubborn because I can remember a time that I gave in to my husband. My husband wanted to do this. I said no. He said yes. I said, okay, do it your way. So you think I'm not stubborn because I gave in. Every husband here is thinking, I'm not stubborn because there was a time that I gave in to my wife. The real question is, do you have a hard heart towards scripture? Are you very firm to defend yourself and very slow to change when you see the Bible? That's the real test of stubbornness. I sometimes reach conclusions and do not want to change from them. I don't want to change on this or that conclusion. For example, I was walking the other day on the road not wearing a mask. And a police officer passed me and said, where's your mask? And I said, I did not know it was the law to put on a mask. And he said, no, you need to wear one. I said, even on the street. Yes, even on the street. And I pushed back and pushed back. And I went past the step of appropriate. And I eventually put it on because he continued to press. But as I walked off, I looked back at myself and thought, why did I do that? Why didn't I put that mask on? And the reason is I'm stubborn. I wasn't fighting for the gospel. I was fighting because I'm an American. You don't tell me what to do. But that's not in the Bible and that's not a fruit of the Spirit. You will not find the 10th fruit of the Spirit having a can-do attitude. Are you like that in other ways? We're all like that in the ways that are important to us. That just happened to be important to me, and I should have said, no problem, put it on. I should not have been stubborn. In what ways are you like that? You are. And if you give yourself to that, you will follow after these fools that we are learning from. Stubbornness is perhaps the greatest sin because it is the heart of what Jesus says, the sin that cannot be forgiven. Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will never be forgiven him. Because speaking a word against the Holy Spirit is rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the Holy Spirit until you die. What is it? To sin against the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It is to reject the Holy Spirit as He calls you. He calls you. Come. 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 Some of you have heard 10, 20, 50, 100 sermons in this church. And you still say no, no, no. That is a stubborn spirit. And it is the worst sin because it cannot be forgiven. Why can that sin not be forgiven? Because it refuses to bow the knee. We can learn from fools to bow our knee. Fools are marked by an unbending, unrelenting opposition to God and His Word. Lesson number three from fools. God eventually removes His grace. If you'll notice, there's only grace for the first three of these nine kings. The 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th kings... 
There's no record of any grace coming to them. Yes, they still received God's kindness, but there's no record of God's grace to them. God had delivered them up to their sins so that they could not repent. If you go on in stubbornness, He will turn you over to your sins so that you find no place of repentance, though you seek for it with tears. That's straight from the book of Hebrews describing Esau. Esau wanted to repent, but he could not. And God will eventually remove His grace. Some people say to me, Pastor, I'm going to be baptized next year. And my response to that is, are you so sure that you can schedule God's grace? He doesn't give you authority to write in his calendar. He determines the calendar, not you. And when he's calling today, when your heart is soft today, when your spirit is sensitive today, obey, 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 because there is no promise that tomorrow he will call. And if he doesn't call, you won't come. God eventually removes his grace. Hebrews 6 verse 6 says, it is impossible for some people to repent. What people? Hebrews 6 verses 4 and 5 list people. If they've had five things, it's impossible for those people to repent. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6. If you have these five things and yet you reject them, you cannot repent. It's an impossibility. What are the five things? They tasted the word of God. They tasted the power of the world to come. They were made partakers of Christ. They, <clears throat> they heard the Bible. They drew near to Christ. If those things have happened to you, at least in a superficial way, they never really penetrated. You were never truly born again, but in some way those five things happened to you, but you go on refusing, it is impossible for that man or woman to repent. Hebrews 6 verse 6. That happened to these kings. Lesson number four. A high position does not suddenly give a man grace. Giving a man a great position does not invest him with grace. We are all tempted to think that if a man drives a nice car or has a big office or wears a suit, that he will speak clear, he will be logical, he will be thoughtful, he will be honest, he will be hardworking. We're all tempted to think that because we judge men so quickly based on their outward appearance. Recently, I had to return something to AutoZone. The box was dirty, but I had not used the part It was an electrical part. They're not supposed to return electrical parts. I walked to them and said, I know it's an electrical part. I'm promising you I did not put it in the car. I gave it to the mechanic. He looked at it. He said, oh, that won't work. It's the wrong one. Can I please return it? And the man at AutoZone said this to me. He was a vendor man. And he said to me in English, you are beautiful. I don't think you would lie to me. I said, well, it happens that I'm not lying to you, but it has nothing to do with whether I'm beautiful or not. It is because I am a Christian that I will not lie to you. And then I gave him a tract. And he was very confident then in taking that electrical part back because I didn't lie to him. But we are all tempted to think if a man wears a nice suit 
Oh, he's got to be telling the truth. We have in our minds the idea that if a man is in the government, he's trustworthy. Christians do not trust the government, even though they obey it. We obey the government, but we don't trust it. Isn't that what Proverbs tells us? Do not put your trust in kings and chariots and horses. In fact, trust in the government is at the heart of fascism. It's at the heart of a great many of our problems today. A high position does not immediately give a man grace. Matthew 16, 26. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses what? His own soul. What will he give in exchange for his soul? A man could be king like these nine men were. And yet they're lost. The fool is skillful at forgetting the most important things. He forgets there is a God. He forgets that he must stand before that God someday. Children, there is a God and you will stand in front of him. And you will answer for what you did. You will answer for whether you were naughty or obedient. You will answer for whether you followed Christ or you followed your friends. We will all have to answer, but fools are quick to forget. Why? There is this never-ending, ever-flowing river of time, and it passes over us. We forget that someday I can experience a sea of joy in the presence of God Or I must experience never-ending pressure and weight of his intense and fiery wrath on my shoulders. And when I say it's too much, I can't bear it, he will not hear. One of those two eternities is awaiting for you. And how could we possibly forget it? We're so skilled at forgetting it. These men, one of them ruled for 41 years. Years with prophets coming to him. And he forgot. In Acts 12, 23, Herod was the king. It's one of the verses we're memorizing. When Herod gave a speech, he boasted. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten with worms and breathed his last. Lesson number five. Wicked men... Drag down the entire nation. These nine men cover a hundred years, more than a hundred years. And what did they do for the nation? Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a blame, a blot, a spot on any people. Proverbs 29, verse 18. The one who keeps the law is happy. Poverty is not only owing to the leaders, it is owing to all of the men in a society. But leaders are able to exercise more influence than others. If we care about our families, if we care about our towns, our people group, our nation, then we should learn from the fools. Lesson number six. Fools ought not to be honored or imitated. Nine of these kings cover a hundred years, three chapters. Most of the kings, there's nothing said about them except he lived, he died, 
He was a sinner. They didn't want they didn't want to waste any time with recording any of their lives because these men lived foolish lives and wicked lives. Fools do nothing worthy of imitation. I have been at too many funerals where the testimonies that were given were things like this. Someone stands up and says, well, Malumi Balovile, he was a funny man, always with jokes. Hinkomu. What do you want at your funeral? Are they going to have to search for something that was worthy to mention about you? Oh, she was always nice to us as the children. What mother isn't nice to her children? Is that the best they're going to say? She was nice to her children? It doesn't take special grace to be nice to your children. In fact, it takes special cursing to be bad to your children. What will they say at your funeral? Lesson number seven. The final lesson, the world is full of worthless men. Notice that these men were all citizens in what country? Israel. They were all members of the people of God. But they were fools. It is possible to be a member in the visible church and still be a fool and still be lost and still be outside of Christ. Visible membership in the people of God is not the same as spiritual membership. Though you come, though you attend, is your heart with Christ? Is Christ in your heart and are you in his heart? Is there a mutual communication of your joy in him and his joy in you? I'm not asking if you've prayed or been baptized. I'm not asking, did you receive Jesus? Is there this interpenetration of the glory of Christ into your soul? Because the world is full of men who call themselves Christians and know nothing about Christ. Even yesterday, as I gave out flyers in Chicota, I probably gave out 50 over two hours. Not one person, not one, zero could answer the question, how does a man go to heaven? And I put the answers in multiple choice so they could list it and choose it from a list. They couldn't even identify the true answer on a list. The world is full of unconverted men. Remember, broad is the gate that leads to hell and narrow is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus said about his people, Little flock, do not be discouraged because your father will give you the kingdom. Little flock, I'm not telling us to rejoice in having a small church. I am telling us, serve God and recognize the world is full of sinners. Don't you be one of them. The greatest and most difficult part of evangelism or Christian ministry is to get people to wake up. And this passage is intended to wake you up. It's supposed to wake you up like the last page of Moby Dick does. I've referenced this several times, but I'm going to reference a different part of the last page now. After the entire ship has sunk and all the people are gone, he says this, and the ocean rolled on as it had done for many thousands of years before. That's what we learn. Your life is going to mean nothing 
Everything you're living and fighting and dying for will mean nothing if you don't learn from the lives of these fools to count your days and to devote yourself to Jehovah and to his word. Let's close our eyes. Oh, Lord Jesus, come to our hearts today. Teach us from these fools. Awaken us. Terrify us with the truth. That we might be comforted with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Guard us from hasty comfort. From too quickly turning away from the terror of our sins. Before the work has been truly done in our souls. May we be humble and built up and strengthened. So that we would not follow these fools to their end. In Jesus' name, amen.